0: Today is Monday, April twelfth. It's my brother's birthday. It's LA Podcast. I'm Hayes Davenport. I'm here with Scott Fraser and Alyssa Walker. We let's get into it. We have a lot of a lot of action this week. Much to let me to be the <laughs> first to say
1: happy birthday, Hayes's brother.
0: Are you ever reminded? I so I did know it was coming, but like, are you ever reminded of like big events by saying the date at the beginning of the show? The yeah.
1: Yes. Frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I th- I feel confident that I'm the first person <laughs> to say it because it is not his birthday as we're recording this.
0: <laughs> Let's get into some L.A. stories. What do we
1: got? Uh, well, I have a fun... I, I was just telling Hayes before we got set up this morning that I am uh, cycling through, as one does during COVID times, to a new interest. This time it is... Ornithology, baby. I'm bird watching. He's I bought myself some orny. <laughs> orny on Maine. Or- <laughs> I am orny on main. Um, hey, I... <laughs> <laughs> I got a pair of binoculars. I am I downloaded some apps. I am but I I went through this early on in the pandemic where I, you know, there was that uh, we're like a year on from that beautiful uh land before time-esque moment where uh, everything just looked like it was shrouded in mist, and there were no cars and LA had suddenly become a a prehistoric paradise and I for like the first time really started paying attention to the bird calls that I was hearing around my neighborhood and feeling some kind of interest about like I wonder like I actually noticed that they are different animals mm. and, uh, f- and wanted to see if I could figure out what was what. So now a year later, um, we are m- very much so back to uh, historic Los Angeles. Yep. And, it's um, still shrouded in uh, mist though lately. Yeah, it's, uh, that is true. Uh, so now I am out there, got my uh, my bird finder book and uh, my binoculars. And if you see me on the street, looking slightly above the horizon with my binoculars, just move on. Just keep moving. <laughs> Say just nothing. Keep, keep it pushing. I I I don't know. I'm not doing what you think I'm doing. <laughs> That's been my week. I I did find. I found one bird. Yeah, I I was gonna say, what did you identify? What was it? What did you? It's (laughs) not like basic shit. Like uh, (laughs) that's an um, interesting uh, name for it. A song sparrow, which was exciting. They are. They do. They are currently doing their like mating calls, and I think it's really. um, They're very boisterous. They they have a lot of different sounds that they make. I actually um, would have guessed that it was like. When when I first started hearing them, I would have guessed it was something more like a, a mockingbird or something like that. But it is a sparrow, and it does um, sort of just perch at the top of various trees around the neighborhood and is projecting its um, its very cool little song. I can probably hear it in the background of some of our episodes, honestly.
2: <laughs> I, I have such a good LA story that is related to that that I must go next because great in in the silence of the early pandemic shutdown um, months, I would be sitting outside at night and would hear a sound I thought was like a, a large cricket or a grasshopper or something like that, but it was actually a tree frog. Wow. And I had to go through this whole moment of, does this happen every spring and I'm never listening? Or is this the first time that they've felt safe to come close enough to my house because there's not as many cars out? But then the other day, one year later, I heard it again.
0: Wow. And it is
2: so loud. It's like, yeah. the, it there, and the sound, I think what this particular one is, is a Pacific tree frog, which if you look it up online, this is the sound that, Hollywood producers would use to show that it was nighttime because it was in the mm-hmm. studios and in all the places that they were filming all these movies back in the day. So that is what you associate with, like, OK, it's quiet now and and something's about to happen.
0: Do they eat the mosquitoes?
2: I hope so. Let's <laughs> what do they eat? They, I know, like, <laughs> we do have ongoing mosquito problem, too. So maybe they are happy. Maybe that's why they're back.
0: I have two uh, addendums, one frog related and one's bird related. Once I found a frog uh, and uh, delivered it to that place, it's called like the Secret Garden or something right on um, Sunset and Highland. There's a garden store on the north side near there because I always heard frogs there. I didn't know where else to take it. Uh and <laughs> the other uh so in bird news, I talked about this on another podcast, it's it's morning dove nesting season. Mm, yeah. They're they're nesting all over town. Uh and once they're gone, ga- I just want to warn people: if you have the morning doves by your house, they're great. It's really not nice. and you watch the babies uh hatch and grow up and fly away. But once the nest is empty, what they leave behind is something called bird mites which have been just kind of chewing on them the entire time. Mm. And once the birds are gone, the bird mites come into the house to find a new host. And that is actually what they do. They choose one individual in the house to be the host. And then they can't survive on, on humans. So it's just uh-huh. three days of pain as they try to eat you. Uh, and then they die off. But once, saying, to once the nest is empty, put it in the trash wow Did this to you I never knew or this? someone
2: that you know this happened I mean, to I someone
0: could... I, I I know very well <laughs> yes
1: uh okay wow here's my LA story now please take your bird mites with you when you leave people <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this week uh I was uh, driving the Sela van uh the, the last two Saturdays we were to take people uh to and from our drop in center and I was talking to a guy from Inglewood who talked and he was talking about how it had changed and all that and with the stadiums and everything and he was like it was it was Prince after prince that uh that's what really lit the fuse and like got it going and I was like, oh yeah." I never really made that connection, and I don't know like how like substantial it, it it is, but I definitely remember in terms of like event shows and like event residencies. There was Taylor Swift at Staples a few years ago, since I've been here, uh, and Prince at the Forum. Did either of you go? Right. No, my aunt did oh. though. We should have her I on. Was super
1: jealous. Oh, we shit. should have her
0: on the show to talk about it. I
2: saw I saw him in Vegas during the other okay. version of that residency. Yes. So I saw I him
0: uh, on the Musicology tour, but I did not see him in uh, in L.A. So he came. Do you know uh, he did twenty one nights? Uh, Alina Shatkin has a great article about this from twenty sixteen on uh, uh, KPCC's website. He did twenty one night uh, residency. He did I think sixteen shows. At the forum. Uh, he announced it only a week before on Lopez Tonight. On George Lopez's mm-hmm. uh, late night show. Uh, the first night. What, he did a three hour show with five encores. Featuring special guest Javier Bardem. <laughs> for some reason. What, is, what does Javier play? I don't know what. Before <laughs> it just came out and waved. Uh, Had the like air pressure cow yes. cattle gun <laughs> he did a 15 minute version of purple rain which i also saw him do in the musicology tours the, the most incredible thing i've ever seen he did one night he did three shows at the house of blues in one night in three different locations in the house of blues he did two nights at the troubadour just like the most incredible month of performances mm-hmm. and i was like going back and look at looking at it, i was like oh yeah this is really amazing and the this guy was saying, like, that's what made people look back at Inglewood as, like, mm-hmm. those shows were such an event that kind of started mm-hmm. the, the the chain reaction of bringing live events, like, like making Inglewood this uh, place for stadiums and. Uh, and live So it's had- his fault that rents have yep. gone up.
1: Yeah. That's, that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> They had such a string of high-profile events that followed that. I mean, yeah, you 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 can absolutely see that in retrospect. The that the forum just sort of became again a a very sought-after location for these type of events. Um, wheels were in motion for yep. a long time, and uh, yeah.
0: Okay, let's get into some quick hits from this week. Everyone is now eligible for the vaccine provided you are of age they card they card for the vaccine you have to be 16 plus
2: wow that's such a good question what if you try to take your 15 and a half
0: year old can you ask they must
2: have to give you yeah i mean that's a tough one because i think you actually could get in trouble for being too young with some FDA approvals or something. I don't know. Yeah,
1: sure. You're not. Yeah, you're not eligible for it based on the FDA standards. They are doing the tests. I mean, they're doing testing for uh, children, Mm -hmm. minors under the age of sixteen. Currently, I know that there are trials for that that are ongoing, and there is, I think, some expectation that that. Kids will be able to take the vaccine later this year, but that is not a that is not a, a capacity thing. Like Alyssa was saying, that's specifically about the, yeah. the eligibility set by the FDA. I don't know what they do. Do they do they require you at any point to give identification? I don't even remember. I don't remember ever I handing it. over any kind of identification. They didn't ask you. I think I, I did. Didn't. You have to do uh insurance card. Yeah, you, I, you filled I filled it out. I
2: filled it out online. So they had my information and they had a scan of my insurance card. So I wonder if that counts as your But if you don't have insurance, I don't know if you have to prove anything else. That's a really good question. These are all good
1: questions. Register register Avery and just see what <laughs> happens.
0: We had a lot of people
2: <laughs> She looks small for her age, but she is 16. <laughs>
0: We had a lot of people uh, go to Cal State L.A. Uh, Just looking at the pictures, you could just tell, like, these people are online for the most part. There were so many Mm -hmm. elite fits in in all the (laughs) pictures at Cal State L.A. Uh, But, like,
2: how stupid did the people that went to Bakersfield feel? uh, I mean, at the same time that there was this, like, Everybody tell your friends to go to Bakersfield Caravan. and they're not going to check you at all. Um, those same days there were appointments that you could go to Cal State on the gold line <laughs> yeah. you know, and not drive um, three hours or however, however yeah, long it took to on that, that day. That. Um, the
1: Marrakesh Express out to <laughs> the Central Valley. Uh, yeah, the, this was a really interesting week for for vaccine eligi- eligibility. Of course, we talked about before that the state had been saying that that everybody was going to be um, eligible, sixteen and up, by the fifteenth. That was the that was the projection yeah. um, that that they've been setting that as as the date for a couple of weeks now. But this was a week in which it felt like. Day by day, and even hour by hour, the situation was changing. So you had the Cal State Bakersfield caravan um, that became that—that that was a thing that that came into existence and went away within the span of about a week. I feel like Bakersfield had a ton of um, open slots, way more vaccines allocated than they could use. But locally, we also—I think even at the time, like like you were saying, Elizabeth—I think even at the time that people were going up to Bakersfield on the QT, we also had Cal State LA, um, which was a walk-up site, allowing people to uh, to check in for vaccination without giving any, uh, you know, it, it, without saying that they were part of a group to which they didn't actually belong. Right, and there, and there was even, one morning
2: where they were like. We're actually, there's too many people walking up. But you yeah. could still just make an appointment on the same day. And you could still, I'm not sure if this is the right thing to do, but you could just say like, I have asthma, check box or yeah. whatever. And you could just go get it with an appointment later that day. But the, so,
1: <laughs> But the, the different thing about this as opposed to, because like line jumping has been a thing, but the different thing about this is that like, for the most part people were able to do this under right, and it was and it was allowed right. like and that's that's sort of what i mean right, too when right. i say like even hour by hour things were changing it's like we have this cal state la site this was the vaccine super site that was set up by fema and the office of um, emergency services um under the state that was supposed to be in place until the fall but um, they decided relatively quickly that they were going to shut it down based on the the, the state's projection that, that more vaccines were going to be coming in and be able to be distributed by local providers. Um, but yeah, within the space of a couple of weeks, we had Please don't tell anybody, but you know, you can come get your vaccine here. And then um the official spokesperson said, actually, yeah, we're we're just gonna make this official. We're going, we're allowing anybody to come yeah. in. And then whoa, wait, now we have Too a flood ready. of people yeah. at the gates. Now you can't do this. Um it, it changed a lot, is all yeah. I'm saying in the space of like, you know, a week or less. I, I mean in the days leading up to
0: the expanding of eligibility, I was trying to get appointments for some people and it was like I think I've used this analogy before, but it was like um Avengers Endgame at the Arc Light, where like every ten minutes there was a every single yes. time slot was open. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just like this is and I think part of the reason is <laughs> Even, even now, opening up age eligibility, something like 40% of 18 to 39 people in the state of California have already been vaccinated because Amazing. of their, uh, their uh, work or, or whatever. Right. And so, you know, it's just like the, the time of abundance is, is, is upon us. They used to also, um, they didn't let you self-attest that you were unhoused previously mm-hmm. because they were worried that you people could just check that box easily and it's like it, it's impossible to to know for sure but now you can uh because mm-hmm. it's just like you can just roll in there and just get the get the thing and move on
2: and I, and again like the messaging and i don't we don't need to keep talking about this we won't need to re- talk about it anymore after next <laughs> week but um again the messaging was from you know you, poor claudia Pesciuta every time that <laughs> she's the one who has to be like calling between the mayor's office and the city and the yeah. county and all the places and getting different answers but like they would say you know it's not our responsibility which is true you know it's not the it's not the city's job to you know have the health department and decide when the tears go down you have our county supervisors just saying yes, of course, this is what we want, thinking again, that they can just tweet it out and it will become policy yeah, within a which matter. Which has worked
0: of, in the past. Which works
2: <laughs> with many other coronavirus responses. And then the mayor was asked um, at the Metro press conference, we'll talk about later in the show, but he they asked him, like, you know, what do you say to people who are um, j- having questions or confused? Or And he was just like, just wait a week. Well, I don't think that's a very good answer either yeah. you know I, I we've been waiting this whole time for this to happen it's clear the capacity is there maybe just say you know we're we're working on it or follow the follow the you know directions of these different sites place because there's nothing we can do about it which is true but yeah. but let's just try to tell people actually don't wait a week like maybe you should just go if you have the opportunity
1: <laughs> yeah i like that did you guys see the um before we before we move on, did you see the tweet that was like uh, somebody posted on Twitter that uh, they they or somebody that they knew wasn't getting wasn't in a hurry to get vaccinated because they felt like uh, the. Media and the government were so desperate for for them to do it that they were just like, you know, it's just too needy. Yeah. So I like I, I feel like having it tr- treating They're it like a new drop. Yeah. Government are tryhards. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it is wor- it's is working. Being like, oh yeah, new vaccine dropped in <laughs> Bakersfield <laughs> was surprisingly successful. <laughs> yeah, the and, and the, si- the city
2: did expand their mobile clinics this week. It's really exciting. You know, like we said, like they keep trying to find different ways to get to people because we still know that there's this big discrepancy by, you know, depending on what, where things are open and, and, and sites are going to close it. The Dodger Stadium site was closed on Friday. A lot of people didn't know we were yeah. supposed to keep it going as baseball started back up. They did close it for the day and it's open again, but I can't see them keeping it there now. It doesn't seem no. like we'll need to. So mm-hmm. another layer of confusion, right?
0: Meanwhile, we have the lowest positivity rate basically of the entire pandemic for uh, tests uh, that are happening. Now, yesterday it was one point one percent positivity and where cases have been rising across the country in the Midwest and uh, and other places that has not really been happening in L.A. Cases have kind of flatlined in the three hundred to eight hundred per day range, but hospitalizations are continuing to fall. We have fewer than five hundred people in the hospital for the first time since March twenty twenty. The uh the 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 English variant is dominant here now, like it is in other places. Uh it is crushing the California variant. Oh yeah. But tip my hat to Hayes. Yes, thank you. you. Never, never ever bought the hype about no. the
1: California variant. No.
0: And I wish I'd been able to to short it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah I, Rock, rocket ship emoji barring it's, it's just hard to picture with with how quickly vaccines are getting out to me it is hard to picture any significant increase we might just be here for a while um but i yeah i think we're we're on our way out of this speak oh gosh i, I So Alyssa was saying that we've talked about Tinhorn Flats before. I just don't think we've talked about it quite enough. I read a couple articles about it this week. Uh, Tinhorn Flats is a saloon and grill in Burbank on Magnolia Boulevard uh, that right now uh, has a bunch of sandbags (laughs) in front of the door. It looks like it's at the, the DMZ. So this is a restaurant that has been uh, undertaking a noble resistance against health orders uh, during the the pandemic. They have refused at every single point to do anything that the county has uh, demanded that they do. They didn't shut down. They didn't want to shut down for indoor dining. They didn't want to shut down outdoor dining. Every time a padlock goes up on the door, they get the bolt cutters out, they fetch the bolt cutters, they uh, they chop <laughs> the thing off, they go inside and and have a huge party. And as a result of that, they lost their health permit. So even now, as other restaurants are able to open again, Tinhorn Flats is not. So this fight continues. Uh-huh. They keep Breaking into their own <laughs> restaurant. It's owned by uh, the uh, the Lepigian family. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, maybe Lepigian. The uh, Barret Lepigian, the owner, lives in Thailand and is is coordinating this effort from from Thailand, mostly through his son, who is 20 years old, and he's the one who is is constantly. Cutting the locks off, removing the He's The Fiona Apple yes, fan. getting. Uh, <laughs> he's been. He was arrested three times in six days. There are about fifty thousand dollars in in fines on the restaurant right now. That which the owner who is has already fled the country and says that he will never pay. Uh,
1: your f- honestly, your fave could never. This is. This is a great story. I um th- these people are completely out of pocket. What the like? I've, I've wondered about these um, about these closures. We also had that restaurant over in Agoura Hills that um, similarly was refusing to, to close down a bar or whatever. And yeah, now it's weird because it's like things are legitimately able to reopen. And I had been wondering what the recourse is for uh, for our government agencies and the spectacle of actually just saying you are not allowed to enter these premises, you have no <laughs> permit to operate, is honestly kind of funny.
0: They, um, there was a city news service article where the kicker was really funny. Where uh, the owner from Thailand said, "Show me one shred of evidence how I'm endangering the public. Just show me, <laughs> just show me one." piece of evidence that it's dangerous to, <laughs> to, to operate in a door It's like okay at this point if you haven't seen one piece of evidence i think there this might not be productive
2: and i was trying to remember <laughs> like there's another one there's one in hollywood uh, the same owner i don't know across the street from like where the bowling alley is. Oh, there's another tin horn flats. Yes. Yeah. I used to
0: work at a restaurant, work, work at a restaurant, work on a TV show where we would get that for lunch once a week. And just the day was basically over after.
2: And there was that. a, and I don't know the story of, it doesn't look like it's open right now because there was a large explosion there a few years ago. Yeah. I remember it was like a, mm-hmm. mysterious.
0: Yes, yeah, it, blew and, up. It, might, it
2: might be open now. <laughs> Everything was cleaned up, but I was like, wow, there's, there's some trouble in, in tin horn flats. Uh,
0: Metro, means- <laughs> Metro News. Uh, where do we want to start? The Oscars or the new CEO? I'll
1: let you two just- Well, We can start with the new CEO. We got uh, word this past week that the official replacement for Chief Executive Phil Washington, who is leaving following the end of his contract in May... Uh, Metro has selected Stephanie Wiggins, former deputy ch- uh, chief executive there, the first woman to run the the organization since. Um, so M- Metro has existed in its current form since the early '90s. So she'll be the first uh, the first woman to lead Metro, and she's coming from a stint where she. Uh, this is kind of like a, there's a, a a back and forth dynamic where. Metro CEOs cycle out and go to Metrolink, the city's uh, or the region's commuter rail agency, or if they're just on deck, I guess they go there and wait it out. Stephanie Wiggins followed Art Leahy, who was a a previous Metro CEO before Phil Washington came in. Uh, He retired from Metrolink and then was succeeded by Stephanie Wiggins, who's now coming back to to run Metro. Um, Yeah. Alyssa, what do you think?
2: Yeah, the announcement was so, I I just thought, like, so emotional and so um, uh, really marked a a turning point. I felt in in what will happen, it's notable that she does not start until after the Oscars are being Mm -hmm. held at Union Station, but I got a Mm -hmm. sense that she might have been someone that wouldn't make the same decision based on what she uh, said in her speech, which was just really about... Back to customers being first, and equity is most important with everything that we do, and really improving service in a way that would change the lives of people across the county. Um, and and she also spoke about, you know, she was uh, born into the foster system, and and talked about how her parents really like uh, uh, emphasized the role of health and and safety and all these other things as she was growing up as part of um, her upbringing, that she was really um, concerned about making sure that everybody had the same uh, access to uh, opportunities in the county. Um, it, it was just really like one of the it just felt like a, a new a new dawn. I think actually she did say that, and that and that and it became like this moment where um i really felt that that things might change rather significantly and then they announced that more service was being added to buses uh starting this week uh cool. later this week so it's going to get so much better
1: i really hope so and i mean and just to talk a, a bit about uh the the chapter that we are moving on mm-hmm. from Um, so, so I, this is, this is tough because I feel like, uh, Metro CEO, current and outgoing Metro CEO, Phil Washington was somebody who, mm, it's like he basically met the brief of what he was brought here to do by the board of directors who chose to hire him six years ago. Uh, he was coming from Denver, Uh, And he had there led a significant infrastructure program uh, that included the privatization uh, of a a number of rail lines. That was what Metro was looking for. And that was more or less what he focused on throughout his time here. He uh, started the Office of Extraordinary Innovation, whose, whose job it is to figure out ways in which the private sector can come in and facilitate uh, the development of major new infrastructure projects and potentially operate and maintain them after they open. Um, and also, he oversaw, as, as have uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti and, and all of the other officials who sit on the board, a massive decline in the use of public transportation here in Los Angeles and a reduction in the service provided to uh, to bus riders while not really improving the conditions in any meaningful way for anybody who uses public transportation. That's the legacy. I mean, and, and the thing is that... Uh, it's, it's a lot of the same people who are on the board of directors. It's a, a, an incredible number of, of the exact same faces. So um, it is good that there is some movement in what they expect from the agency. As I, as I uh, credited Garcetti the other day on, on Twitter, I heard him for the first time refer to transit as a public good. Um, instead of the 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 old fashioned LA way of thinking about it, which is sort of a jobs program and maybe a way to get cars off the road, um, so it's positive movement. It's very late in coming, and it, it doesn't leave me with a ton of of either confidence um, in the agency going forward, or also feeling confident about saying, you know, Phil Washington's leadership was the problem. I think it was very much indicative of where the agency's thinking has been. And where can we look to see that more than with this thing with the Oscars? Um, I... I've said before, and I'll say again, I, I, you know, we, we have Metro shutting down Union station because they don't give a fuck about people who ride public transportation. They're going to throw a big party for Hollywood types, Hollywood elites. When am I ever going to get to say that? These are, are literal Hollywood elites. Um, Uh, so they close down the transit station. Um, Alyssa and I post about it online. Metro gets mad at us and says, Hey, you're misrepresenting what we're actually doing. And then Alyssa finds, uh, an infographic that they post online that actually shows that they are straight (laughs) up closing the station, the front half of, or the, the Western half of the station for two full days uh, a variety of other closures are going to be in place for several weeks, and um, and this is no bones about it. This is happening because Metro does not care about transit riders, and um, and the people who work there do not ride the transit that they offer would not deign to do so. So I mean, this is just the worst. I I really wish that this. I really just wish that this was not happening. Um, and I, I, I don't think that they really consider how much this negatively impacts the trust that their riders do or don't have in them as an agency. I, I think I think bus riders really know what to expect from Metro at this point. But if you want to start to turn that relationship around, uh, you can't be dismissive of, of, of things like this and the impacts that it has on people's lives.
2: And, and also just looking at the street closures around um, Unistation which have, I think there's maybe like next week one, one street starts to be closed and it does that like spread of like blood through the cracks as it like seeps through the surrounding streets. And by the time this the show happens, it's like a large perimeter where you can't get into. But there's a lot of people who are living on those streets and sidewalks and overpasses. Like the overpass over the 101 is going to be closed, two different ones. And the exits to the one, uh, 101 will be closed. But again, are we going to see the same kind of, you know, offers of housing, but we don't actually really have anywhere to put you when we're going to forcibly move you by a certain day? So that's something to watch out for as well um, as this happens.
0: This is another thing we've talked about on and off over the life of the podcast. To hone ranch, a massive, uh, currently uh, uh, undeveloped property uh, out up. Up Interstate uh, Five, about seventy miles north of the city, uh, this uh, is a project that we last talked about on the show in depth in August of 2018. Uh, there, uh, there's plans to house up to 57,000 people uh, up there, basically to build a medium-sized city uh, up yeah. near the Tehachapi Mountains in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, And a judge has blocked the construction of Tohono Ranch. This project has been a really, really long time uh, in the making. There was an agreement with uh, environmental groups in 2008 to protect 240,000 acres of the ranch. That was the largest conservation pact in California history. But there have been a lot of issues with, like, the number of cars that would be uh put on the road driving to and from uh city of LA and uh, and other nearby cities to mm-hmm. what would basically be a uh primarily residential development way out there uh and also the judge mentioned fire risk the 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 construction was blocked based on environmental concerns
1: this is like i feel so <laughs> yeah fire fire risk um, disruption to the the, the environmental uh, and ecological landscape in the area. I feel like when this happened, when this was approved by our lone republican supervisor or a deal that she had backed uh, catherine barger i I feel like that was a major step backward and, and sort of recognizing that um that despite being the only Republican representative on the board of supervisors. She represents a geographical area larger than that of the other four supervisors combined. There's like Mm. a lot of potential to fuck up the climate. I feel like uh, personally (laughs) like having read this story and thankfully the the judge uh, did issue uh, an injunction on moving forward here. Uh, at least temporarily, it's like when you think about the impacts of putting 60,000, 100,000 more people in this um, outland where there is nothing and um, encouraging them all to drive cars to and from Bakersfield or Los Angeles and not having any of the services that need to be there and all of this sprawly type bullshit, the responsible thing, the most responsible thing that I feel like you could do would be to have the state buy this land back from the town Ranch <laughs> Company and and just never build anything there. To just buy it and, and conserve it, that I feel like would be responsible.
2: And to trade them for a space where they could build as many homes closer to transit and other services. And I mean, they could totally make a deal like that. The county has land. They could, they could say, okay, don't build here, but build over here instead. And you can still... Do your development it just won't kill us all in the process um I I thought this was and the, didn't the supervisors all unanimously approve this wasn't it when it went through um, I think so Two so years they need to be thinking about their their lives right now a little bit and and how how they want to move forward because I think what climate resolve has done now twice has mm-hmm. gotten a judge to agree with them over the <laughs> the uh, uh the decisions that were made by the county both metro and and supervisors they got the high desert corridor stopped uh, which has been a, a new freeway mm-hmm. basically um
1: in, the same, in district. the same
2: district on the on the more eastern side and now this so who who are they who are, who is being more informed about these issues that are happening in their mm-hmm. own districts right this
1: is this is this is the same thinking that we see at the city council level the board of Supervisors saying Saying it's your district, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go with what you think is best. Um, th- that is extremely problematic at the city level and much m- much worse at the county level, where each of these people represent two million residents. And like I said, uh, Barker's district is enormous. This is basically saying we want to make this uh republican representative the the queen of a small nation more or less it's it's a terrible terrible way to to do any sort of political business and shouldn't happen at all
0: all right let's get into uh, this week there were a number of really devastating stories uh related to some um some extra uh, tragic uh, deaths related to homelessness and uh, coming off of the aftermath of uh, Echo Park Lake being cleaned out uh, a couple weeks ago and uh, many, many people being forcibly evicted. I want to zero in on some of these stories and talk about what we just what we learned about um, this week. So. On Sunday, a week ago, there was a man at the encampment uh, that's mostly composed of veterans outside of the VA in Brentwood on the sidewalk. Uh, a man was killed there. Another man was injured when someone, a resident of the encampment, got in his car and ran over their tents. Uh, and when the man who was killed was dragged down the road. It was an awful, awful uh grizzly uh, event in- incredibly sad for an, en- an encampment there that has had a lot of recent tragedy a, a few weeks ago another car drove through it unintentionally uh, apparently um where also a few people were injured but luckily no one was was, was hospitalized in that event also we found out that uh, this happened last week but was more information on it this week. There was a murder in Beverly Grove. Uh, Gabriel Donay, who was 31 years old, was killed in his backyard by a person experiencing homelessness who uh, later killed himself as police were closing in. There was a death uh, two nights ago on Skid Row, a tent that uh, caught on fire. Uh, and uh, the man who's uh, 60 years old was, was found dead inside the tent. And, like, as we, like, even as I like, list these off, I can feel, like, kind of a hesitation about even like, talking about it because I think people worry now, rightfully so, that if they affirm the condition of homelessness as dangerous as a, a public health crisis, as a as a source of uh, violence, as a, a threat to healthy, thriving communities, that they're feeding into NIMBY rhetoric because this is, like, talked about all the... Like, th- these are the kinds of things that are highlighted by people that just want sweeps to happen, want people thrown in jail, want people just, like, taken off the street. But homelessness really is incredibly dangerous. It is... uh it, it, like the, it, the people in these conditions are subject to hugely disproportionate violence and harm, and like and tragedy and suffering, and this is all part of what we're seeing in LA. We've talked about how deaths have increased from three a day to four a day. The reason I think it's important to t- is just to kind of like center the unacceptability of these conditions. In 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 Los Angeles, that like the the reality of homelessness is not something that we have to accept in any way, shape, or form. We can have all kinds of like disagreements about the the most effective way to get people out of this situation into safer environments. Uh, and I think one that's really important right now is uh, there's a bill going through the state level. A, a they call it a harm reduction bill, but Scott Weiner is putting forward something that he's also. Uh, worked on in San Francisco, where he is the state senator, uh, which is allowing for safe injection sites. We currently have nothing like that in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost, like, very few places in the country, in, in the U.S., allow this to happen. It's the type of thing like Tucker Carlson and, and Fox News talk about as, like as ridiculous because it's a place where you can go... And use the drugs like heroin in a safe, supervised environment. And the places <laughs> where this has been done across the country, uh, across the world, uh, no one has ever overdosed in that environment. And it is, you know, I think it's it's framed as a way for, uh, like, uh, as, as if somehow people are going to be exposed to more addiction through this process. But it's actually, for most people, a pathway out of addiction in a in a safe supervised uh, environment solutions like that i think are just really urgent to be talking about right now in, in LA given what we're seeing on the street and just like how much disaster every single day you hear just an absolutely disastrous story of what uh, of, of 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 what homelessness uh, has has kind of wrought
1: in this city, there's just I, I. This is something that we've talked a lot about, both on and and off the show. But what is really striking to me is there's there's sort of a trap when it comes to, like you said, like you said, not wanting to. Talk about or discuss things that potentially lead into or or are feared that they will uh, fan the the flames of of, um, you know, hate the most hateful NIMBY rhetoric that that we see taking place. And I I do worry a lot about um, the actual opposite happening where it's like we are um, we are being, Sort of tricked into uh, defending the de- defending a, sca- a status quo that actually we all have sort of been saying is unacceptable for a long time. Kind of a you know, um, the, uh, duck season, rabbit season. Yeah, feels a little <laughs> yes, like that. Yes, yes, yes. it is. Um, yeah, it is. It, it is like that. It's it's very um, disconcerting to watch happen in real time. I think you know for people who are are going out and working with unhoused people hey as you do with uh with Sila, um i go out with with street watch and and do um you know and and do work with unhoused folks it's it's interesting because like there is there there is a lot of of um pain and suffering on our streets that's what keeps a lot of people going out there and and trying to help. Is is the knowledge that I mean, you know, street watch does things like um, Narcan trainings to try and and that's something that uh, homeless services uh, groups do really commonly. But like the learning of of first aid and of potentially life saving uh, interventions in the case of fentanyl overdoses is, is, is really important. There are camps where, um, where people are protected by their peers and, um, and are able to do, uh, you know, whatever sex work or whatever they, they might need to do in order to make money to survive in a safe manner. But a lot of the time that is not the case. And, um, and there are, uh, you know, obviously issues with disease, rats, violence from house people, from other unhoused people. This is stuff that we've talked about on the show innumerable times. Yeah. And I would say um,
0: even like there are there are locations where you can be uh more safe, kept kept sure. more yeah. safe by your peers, but I, I don't know of an example of and like th- like this was honestly the situation at Echo Park Lake as well. It was a, a place where there were more ser- services, there was more of a sense of community. I I would not define Echo Park Lake as a as a safe environment because of the the just the basic realities of of homelessness. Uh there are yeah. the, like right people like there were I mean, this is like, and it's not a referendum on, uh, like how the environment was like taken care of or whatever. Homelessness, no, and because I want to
1: just say, yeah, exa- exactly, because and because of, uh, because of how it's constituted, right? Like yes. we have, um, if just to think back a couple of years ago, we we were high, or this was actually around the time that we started this this podcast three years ago. Uh, there was a, a UN report that came out about conditions of people living not just in homelessness but in poverty of all descriptions across the United States. One of those uh, one of those aspects one of those aspects of the trip the UN reporter took was a trip through California, looking at homelessness in San Francisco and in Los Angeles at Skid Row, and um, and. From the UN perspective, it was very obvious that homelessness was constituted of of people who had fallen into uh, these racialized traps of uh, over-policing, incarceration, addiction, lack of social services... Uh, and are allowed then to exist in a marginal outside of society state where um, where the government feels no responsibility to care for them, only feels responsibility to uh, members of a community who view them as an inconvenience or a blight uh, and not as valid constituents. That's something that we see continuing to this day in Echo Park in the language from Mitchell Farrell, who... Uh, to your earlier point, Hayes, has been on a very, very uh, toxic news tour where he is talking about, um, you know, the the presence of needles, the presence of guns, the presence of whatever. Like, um, people are living in a situation where they have been denied any protections from society where they uh, are subject to being preyed upon by um, anybody, basically anybody yeah. who cares cares to do so. And so they either protect themselves in ways that they see fit or they don't or they can't. Um, you know, it's, it's very much a situation where uh, people are doing what they can to get by uh, and it should be viewed in a lens of um what a catastrophic failure this is and not as like uh denial that a, these some, uh yes
0: not like denying that these things are happening like yeah uh i i yes i like I, and i totally see the tendency to um to to resist the kind of thing that O'Farrell was talking about and and say that like uh, to downplay the dangers in these environments. But that that's the trap you're talking about, right, is like acceptance of the status quo that comes from that.
1: Yeah, yeah so I mean so what Mitchell Farrell is doing that is so bad in my mind is um, is he is he is saying and setting the uh, this this is a man this is a political actor with a long and well-established history of wanting to sweep unhoused yeah. people out by whatever means possible he called uh, an army of LAPD to do just that Um But what I'm what I'm seeing personally is uh, is activists and organizers having a very difficult time uh, articulating the refutation of uh, of this, not for an audience of city council members who have shown themselves to be more or less inoculated against all of the arguments that um, that people who work with done housed including uh, including loss employees uh, any any sort of strategies that they think are best city council members are very comfortable just ignoring but for an audience of of people who are more or less able to be convinced but are looking at the conditions on the streets um, as something that needs to be you know urgently done something something urgently needs to be done something yeah. about. Um, and and I think that the the refutations are are slow in coming, and um, and the the toxic narrative framing uh, of of basically like Mitchell Farrell saying, "Well, look, we we don't view them as criminals, but also here, look, the, these people look are clearly these crimes. dangerous." Yes. Yes. And. And, and so like if they don't if they don't do whatever it is that I tell them that they should do then I'm justified in doing whatever I need to do um, it is it is a classic uh, law and order argument right. and it's it is not it is not good that you know we we are we we come back to this same place every couple of years mm-hmm. it's been happening for four decades at this point and and it, it keeps happening and there needs to be a a, a stronger refutation of that because just n- the people who are compelled by by compassion are are going to be compelled one way or the other. The people who are not, or, or who who view compassionate action as um, as many people do, as taking away the the independent decision making ability of people who are living unhoused, that it's just not reaching them. It won't reach them, I don't think.
2: And that I feel like that was a lot of uh, the the two responses to you know, things that I wrote and, and people who were commenting on that and, and other places is it's always you want to keep our neighborhood dangerous, you know, not considering that this is a problem that is all over the entire county. I mean, it's it's not I think it's you're you're, very, you're not very insulated from it unless you um, are probably in the very highest canyons in the, uh, up in the hills. Um and then the the it the other response is always, "Well, why don't you do something about it um in your backyard or in your you know th- through your work? Well, you actually can do that you can if you have the means you can like build an a d u in your backyard or whatever and slowly solve the problem that is that is true, but I think what what we what messaging we need to Really move towards, and we saw Councilmember Mike Bonin make mm-hmm. a huge step towards this. And Scott, I think your um, sharing of his post was so accurate. Like this is this is what we need to see every council member doing. They haven't. They 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 try to make a parade of like, oh, I did this one small thing. I opened a bridge home shelter. I did this, but a comprehensive look at it is going to go beyond. HHH, permanent supportive housing, which we're not going to build nearly enough. We know the money's all spoken for already. We're not, it's not a path forward anymore. We don't think the city is going to expand Project Groomkey. We, we just don't think that that is going to be a way, for, a way forward. And it's been completely ruined, I think, by what happened at Echo Park Lake. Like we now think of it as this, you know, a bad thing, not actually a good thing that we had been pushing for all this time. So we need to think creatively and quickly about how else to make people um, see these solution- different types of solutions that can happen in their neighborhood. And I thought what he did was was really quite wonderful to just mm-hmm. walk through, like, here are some different options, safe camping, safe parking, um, sleeping cabins, I've seen them being called now, or tiny homes. Um, it just a, a real, all types of things must be explored at this moment because you saw that report earlier this year they said that homelessness was going to probably double by 2023 in just based on economic trends that we're, we're still not fully recovered recovering from yet. So it could most likely be worse. So I think we need to all put it in our minds and the story that we need to start talking about is what, what can you envision on your block, in your backyard, with your organization and, and actually do it within the next six months? Because we, have, we all have to actually do it.
1: I uh, I mean the thing is so what what really concerns me about what what Mike Mike Bonin has done here obviously uh, um you know people are like oh well Mike Bonin's not a, a perfect politician obviously n- nobody is um but what is concerning to me is that we have really you know a handful of of politicians who have shown any sort of um, willingness to stick to solutions to the, the homelessness crisis that will actually work if given a chance to succeed. Most, uh, most of that has been abandoned without ever really being given a chance. Um, I mean, we can go back as far as um, Council President Nuri Martinez coming into that position in uh, 2020, in the beginning of 2020, and immediately killing the the care model, immediately reversing it so that it was n- really no longer what it was intended to be. Because, um, you know, at that point in time, we had the mountains of trash uh, stories showing up in newspapers. Residents were... Uh, were furious about the conditions on the streets, and there was already this sense of we've we've tried being lenient. that didn't work now we need a different approach. We hadn't really tried it. And uh, a year on we still um, we still haven't. and and lenient isn't even the right word, I mean, but but what we're getting instead is a lot of council members who are uh, are really quickly and really enthusiastically seizing on to, more punitive models because now they have uh, they have this anger that has reached such a boiling point among mostly homeowners um, that there's this really reactionary backlash that is is being empowered. Mike Bonin's situation is somewhat unique because he is facing a lot of that pressure in his own district. He's facing a lot of anger and he has been for years um, and he in the face of that has has uh, stood stood his ground. Has continued to embrace positions um, that are at odds with what the angriest voices in his district are saying, and has uh, has continued to show a willingness to experiment with new policies that can actually help people. So my my concern is that if if we ha- if you lose somebody who's in that position, like uh, say we were to win a different seat that progressive activists are are trying to win in 2022, but you lose a, a, a Mike Bonin, I feel like that is a very, you know, it, it, it's hard to justify that exchange. It's a signal. You can't protect this seat. It's a signal to the political establishment in LA that
0: these policies are not worth pursuing. You'll be punished for them. Uh, if you de- It doesn't even matter if they work. Exactly. Yeah. If you demonstrate right. the kind of courage that Mike Bonin is displaying right now, it is actual courage, especially in that district. He represents the beach communities. He represents Brentwood and the, the pushbacks. What he's doing is exploring, like you were saying, Alyssa, uh, a, a, a variety of safe camping, safe sleeping, safe parking for RVs and other types of vehicles in uh, beach areas in his district, Dockweiler Beach, uh, Fisherman's Village, uh, places like that, and also in the uh, Pacific Palisades. The backlash has just been extremely, extremely intense. There's a petition on change.org that has been signed by almost 14,000 people uh, called Say No to LA City Plans for Legalized Homeless Encampment at Palisades Beach, uh, there was a letter sent out from the Brentwood Community Council, the subject being homelessness and homicide on San Vicente, uh, talking about the overwhelming response uh, against these kinds of uh, initiatives. And one of the things that they are pushing very hard for is what they call a project room key housing program for the San Vicente uh, encampment outside the VA, which is basically saying do uh, bring the Echo Park model here offer the 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 temporary hotel shelters for people that are living there and whoever doesn't take it gets swept out this will ultimately and we're going to see more of this uh, there's a settlement coming up soon from the la alliance which is gonna uh, codify this type of process where like as long as you offer a certain amount of housing everyone else can be swept out and what are basically these problem encampments and it's going to combine the uh, combine services and enforcement in a way that is going to devastate trust in services uh, and just undermine uh-huh. the in, the entire project of building healthier communities and uh, and finding better solutions to alleviate the conditions of, of homelessness in a meaningful way. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, you're. You're both absolutely right. I mean, like this is—it's—it's it's existential. It's going to send us right back to where we were a few years ago, and we'll just come. We'll continue this cycle over and over, where like criminalization will keep people on the street, and we—we we can just keep doing this, or we can build something. Mike Bonin is is trying really hard to build something, to like to create new solutions. And Alyssa, you sent us uh, that article in the, in the LA Times about Santa Rosa. And, the, and there was a sanctioned campsite there that the community really got behind. Uh, and like, because it was a place where the people could volunteer, where you could get to know your neighbors, it became this, real, like, th- this place that thrived, that, had, that ended up with a huge amount of community support. And right now, all we have is resistance. And the building has to start. Like, uh, to activate people that haven't participated as much in this, process but who are generally in agreement organizing within neighborhoods just to say like yes we want this this kind of services here and we're going to help make it better if, if if that doesn't happen we're just going to uh, there's just going to be devastation all over the city
1: i i mean it's 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 even it's even worse than that, right? Like we're not we're we're not going back to where we were a couple of years ago yeah. because what happens when you what happens when you go back to the status quo of a couple of years ago too is that um, uh, you lose a lot of people. Mm-hmm. P- I mean, people who who have gone through this type of thing before they're unhoused. Um, you know that they might be so scarred by the experience they might become. M- I don't want to say unreachable but they might become like just significantly more difficult to actually provide ser- services for people who are invested in helping out uh become potentially so sapped by by um you know it it there's a real toll there's an emotional toll that cannot be discounted and and people are not uh um people are are not just like robots who who are in indif- you know, they just can't they can't be taken out of of sorts. They they are definitely subject to dismay. And that's a real that's a real threat. And I, I do kind of wonder too, you know what there, I, I I know that there is a clear narrative of like of what needs to happen here and how how it is that the the services that uh, that are to be provided to people who are unhoused can be provided in a safe and uh, in, in a way that is worthy of of being trusted. But we are not really at a place where the narrative is clear at this point. I'm not saying that nobody has that vision um, or that there is one unifying vision for that, but. Um, I do think that that narrative thread is harder to find at this point than it has been um, in, in quite some time.
2: And there is, I mean, some some things have changed in the last few weeks. We had um, Councilmember Kevin DeLeon, who had earlier in the year introduced this 25,000 home goal by 2025. Do I have that right? Is that the right numbers? There's question now about how you create those you know how how you create that number of housing does does tiny homes cut it no you know I mean I think this whole question of what becomes permanent or what is uh, created permanent or or built or um and and how you give people choices about how and where they'll be able to be be able to live once they go indoors that's those are all really important questions and then from the federal level you know, we have our new um HUD secretary Marsha Fudge and she said all the right things this week about like we are building no more shelters is what she said when they signed this you know latest relief package and and that she is really focusing more on things like rental assistance to you know keep people housed and without falling back into homelessness so but again we've had billions of dollars before <laughs> and we completely screwed it up as a city, right? And county, right? We had we had a moment where we had billions of dollars um and and nothing and like we said we're right back where we were the money is going to be spent and some people will get housed but many more people you know fell into homelessness during the same time. The
1: the federal government can do a lot and in a hurry if it is interested if there is the political will for that to happen um and there just hasn't and been. they don't have to They're be in really the business
0: happen. of shelters honestly like there's so much money that the federal government should be really focused on on building housing but like i am wary of what has become a, 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 a kind of an aversion to uh to to any kind of like shelter space uh and there are ones that are run poorly. There are also types of shelters where, like, I know dozens and dozens of people who uh, would just love a safe, sanctioned place to spend the night yeah. with bathrooms, with services. Right. Like, there's, there's al- there are always ways for it to be improved. And there are, yes. it's always worth saying, like, okay, you're putting too many people in this sleeping cabin. These should be w- for one person, not two uh right. because you want people to participate you want these to be better programs that people want to do that's true for project room key as well like changing mm-hmm, the system mm-hmm. so people want to do it is always really important but it is not for us to say that these that any shelter uh project should not exist people don't have to be forced into it but like these are things that like volu- if you can get it up quickly you are saving lives every single night that right. people are in there,
2: right. I uh, took that as the federal government was going to create permanent housing. You know, focus more on creating absolutely, permanent housing but now, yeah,
0: yes. Yeah, I right. just want to make sure that it's like at the city level yeah. we can like like safe camping site they're doing in San Francisco and they're really working and the people in many, those many safe, places,
2: yes, yes, yeah. those
0: safe camping locations are thrilled to to be there because I mean they, all
2: the cities that it's. The The resistance of our of our city. And I know there's some things that they're being discussed now that are finally on the table after this horrible thing had to happen for, with no clear timeline as for why that had to happen when or the way that it did. But now all of a sudden it's going to be like, oh, we are open to these things. But like you said, the the dialogue with the neighbors, with the people who are supposed to welcome these to their neighborhoods has been completely exploded as well because now they're going to say I saw that streets of shame report and well you know the tents really aren't that safe you know I heard this and that's exactly what's going to happen now
0: it's blown up in every direction where what what Mike Bonin is offering in uh in, in the beach areas is being Pushed back against so hard by the residents who are there who don't want any uh, homeless services in their neighborhood. And in Mitch Farrell's district, because trust in him has been so devastated, that's where these projects actually are going up. There's the sleeping cabin project on Alvarado. There's uh, there's going to be a sanctioned campsite uh, in on on Madison coming up pretty soon. And in my no, neighborhood,
2: in in where yes. I live, you know, people tried to yell at me and say that you know I don't understand what it's like. Um, I live I live right by path. Like I, you know, th- this is like the best thing that's ever happened to our neighborhood. All the stuff that they're trying there, I mean, but like,
0: nobody trusts Mitch O'Farrell to operate these sites in a way that isn't punitive, yes, in a way that exactly. is uh, that the, the, that is something that people who are homeless will want to use. Then that at at some point i do think we have to fight through that and like and try to make these things work because like in terms of public perception it's elastic like it takes decades to build the kind of political will that we have to provide housing and services it doesn't feel like much but like compared to other times in history, this is way, way more than basically we've ever gotten in LA in terms of money for it's housing our, and services.
2: Our moonshot,
0: Hayes, is, is this our moonshot? I mean, like, and it feels so <laughs> pathetic if this is our it's moonshot. It's been like a
2: decades-long moonshot now but, at this point. Really, but like, it's
0: uh, it, it snaps back in an instant. I don't think HHH yeah. would yeah. pass today. Uh, yeah. if it were put on the ballot like that public opinion uh evaporates like that especially well, all, when, yeah. when you have like Trust a george
1: has- gascon and like other public officials yeah. to point to Trust and saying has
2: been yeah undermined
1: completely we, i, I, I want to say too you know it, it just it, it occurred to me while you were we talking hayes that when we talk about like the the Resistance to any shelter-type uh, situation. And uh, that um, really is... I, I think that sentiment really is the result of Mitch O'Farrell doing... What am- I mean, what amounts to, like... You're talking about blowing up in every direction. Yeah, it's like he threw a grenade into the middle of this discourse um, in order to accomplish something that was important for him personally. Like, this, this entire action... Uh, arbitrary from any perspective except for the perspective of wanting to be reelected as city council member. He did something that was uh, brutish and self-serving and et cetera, et cetera, only because um, it was a calculated risk, a calculated expense. And frankly, there's not really question in my mind that it worked to serve his purposes, I so and I don't think that there's even uh, there's even time that we have as people who want to see us continue to um, to repair the damage done by people like Mitch O'Farrell. We don't have the we don't have the luxury of time to discuss whether or not that was the case. We need to just operate as though um, this was a very successful. Assault on a, a paradigm in which unhoused people are treated as 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 people who have been marginalized and need greater access to services, um, because it is going to be emulated with shocking speed across the city. But I I, I do want to say too, we're weeks removed, just a matter of weeks removed from Mayor Garcetti getting in front of of TV cameras and saying that we were meeting the we did not need to expand project room key because we were meeting the existing need on the streets for for project room key and that was something mm-hmm. that he said that was prior to Echo Park Lake and he was uh completely pilloried for for saying that there's no way that we are meeting the need for project room key or other shelter like services um, that's ridiculous. How could you even think that? And then, you know, only a matter of weeks later, the things have become destabilized to the point that I think a lot of other people would make that argument no one wants to be in project room key nobody which would which is not true and on, which unknown. is not true and it's we true, did expand
2: yeah. it we have ex- clearly there were more people that wanted to be in it because they're in it now because they came from the lake
1: and that and and, and the thing is we need to be able to and this is this is the thing we where where I'm talking about the the narrative thread getting lost we need to be able to um to say Project Room Key is is not a perfect program. It is not a program where uh, necessarily and in all cases people are being treated with the the respect and dignity uh, that they deserve. And yet, also, it does provide a function that needs to exist right now. And also, that uh, it should not be used um, as as a uh, a cudgel to go mm-hmm. in and wreck relationships that are being built between homeless services providers and the unhoused in order to boost a single narcissistic man's political career. Yeah. Like those are all things that are, it's not just that they can be true simultaneously. They are all true in, in, in a maximal uh, sense. At the same time, and we need to be able to position ourselves accordingly.
0: But there's, I mean, this is the hardest one because there's another aspect that is like kind of outside the discourse. When these services work well, they, uh, communities are allowed to help make them better, are allowed to like engage in the right now, the way homeless services mostly work in LA is they're behind. Walls—they're invisible. They're like the oil derricks uh, that uh, uh, on like Beverly Hills High School property. You are not really supposed to know that it's there. But what worked in Santa Rosa, what has worked in San Francisco, is when housed and unhoused people are allowed to be in these community spaces together. That's also what worked at Echo Park Lake, by the way. Like that's the that's what like the big lesson from uh, what was what made Echo Park Lake safer. And what made it like a better place for people to be is that it was a full-on community space where all kinds of people were interacting with each That's other. Right. Yes, it, and it takes a lot of emotional work to be able to go to a an elected official who you don't trust and who you have no reason to, and to say like, "Hey, we want to collaborate to make these spaces better for the people who are living there." But if you don't do that, then you're just
1: leaving it to uh, th- then it will fail. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I am... Pes- I, so I am pessimistic about the Santa Rosa model, if only because... Well, so here... I I shouldn't say that just like that. I, I believe that the Santa Rosa model um, can work. And I do believe that relationships can be built between housed people and unhoused people. I don't think that necessarily a lot of energy has gone into that. If we look again at, at Echo Park Lake as the... Um, as the example, we had a a core group of unhoused folks at uh, at Echo Park Lake there who were independently going about trying to build community bonds with people in the uh, in the surrounding uh, housing in the neighborhoods. Um, but we had a, a, a politician who refused to meet with them who did not really accept the project of trying to um, of trying to make that a community effort to get mm-hmm. people into housing was not interested in it and will not be interested in it but the, the reason why um, why I, I said I was a little bit pessimistic about the Santa Rosa model is because if you look at the way that we treat unhoused people as as a city here in Los Angeles it is um, it is, struck through with the the notion of people being um undeserving poor basically like they they are they are not necessarily deserving of uh of services um we see this in discourse around for example the encampment that steve lopez wrote about at hollywood and berendo where it's like okay these people are um gang members they they are not validly homeless they they deserve to be in a prison cell not in whatever else um that is a major part of the discourse and um it is different than santa rosa it it wasn't though i have to kind of dispute that because it it, wait but let let me mm -hmm. finish though okay because the experience of santa rosa is one of Uh, force majeure right like it is there was an act of god that destroyed a lot of people's homes and so there is a different connotation to being unhoused obviously uh i i get what you're saying that it didn't start out out that way there either um but it starts with being um you know open to that, having a, a, a dispositional openness to thinking of unhoused people as being like you, which I think a lot of people here are closed off to. That does not mean that it could never change and it doesn't mean that it's not a worthy project to uh, to take that on. But I think that on a massive scale, Santa Rosa, a much smaller community than Los Angeles, has more uh, openness to that because of recent experience there with the fire. But that's the only
0: way that you change it. Is to create and so this this article I think is really worth reading. It was in the L.A. Times uh, on April eighth. It's by Angela Hart. Uh, from Kaiser Health News, uh, and the the mayor at the time of Santa Rosa, like the backlash was immense to putting up this yeah. tent city. And did you see what his what he says was his like mindset as he was putting this together? It was go ahead and vote me out. Like if, yeah. if if you're not happy with this, I'm doing this regardless. Vote me out. Nothing else. A great it's message
2: lead- for a mayor that does not have to be uh, up for re-election right now. It would that's, be a great that's leadership. Thing that's,
0: leadership. To say. that's what Mike Bonin is doing right now. Mike yeah, Bonin is saying, "Go ahead and vote me out if you don't want this. This is the only yeah. way that we are. Nothing yeah. else will work. This is the only way out of this. Yes. And if we can engage with these spaces as communities, that, that all these dynamics will melt away. This is... I have seen it happen to some extent in like uh, super localized environments with SELA. Uh, yeah. People that are resistant, they come in and volunteer, they meet a bunch of people, it melts.
2: Yeah. And that's why it has to be carving out the spots in that you're familiar with in your neighborhood mm-hmm. or with your yeah. you know, neighbors. And I think that that is a really important part of it. And also... You know, it's funny that we can't see the pandemic as being one of those events that it's, might. It,
0: it, it's a huge <laughs> it's, part it's of it. It's just, I'll, um, I'll,
2: right? Like, it's our yeah. earthquake, right? I mean, it was.
0: And it's also been that's, devastating that's for point. walling people off from each other. And, yeah. like, uh, to some extent,
1: those those barriers get built back up and they have to be yeah.
0: uh, removed again.
1: I, I, too, will, I mean, I feel like uh, I just want to clarify, like, l- it's it is leadership because it is uh, as as you've been saying, Hayes. It is ground on which to build. Mm-hmm. You can say we this this is a project worth doing, um, and I understand that you're you're not happy about it. I hear that you're not happy about it, and you can f- go to the go to the ballot and and vote me out. Leadership is not just saying, you know, f- fuck you. I don't care um because that is that is then yeah they will just go vote you out and undo all that work mm-hmm. and it doesn't have a lasting impact but it can have a lasting impact um if you are doing it um from a from a standpoint of this is this is something that we can build off of you you pro- you're providing a way to be followed basically uh yeah and i think this uh, this mayor the guy's name is uh Tom
0: Schwedlin uh, Schwedhelm uh, was th- that was his internal monologue. Like, we're doing this, re- like, regardless, we have to do this, and you can vote me out if you don't like it. But I think, yes, the public, uh, the face of it has to be, like, we, like, everyone in the community is allowed to get involved and, and participate this project of creating a healthier space for everyone. And this is the potential of coming out of the pandemic, honestly. Like, we haven't really been able to do that because of spatial restrictions, but now we can, uh, we can build these po- collective spaces again. If we can do that with a few safe camping locations, if we can put safe injection sites on these uh, safe camping locations, just like this city that is currently sick, everyone agrees will gradually be, be healed. I, I, I'm I more optimistic about the potential for that, but it just takes um, a massive amount of work and just a focus on on building uh every with every single thing that we do basically we could keep going for a long time uh we uh thank you for listening to la podcast well we're gonna talk about pulp fiction on the patreon this week uh fun stuff for our show 30 mile zone that'll be out uh later this week thank you to brian holmes for producing this show and that show that's on patreon.com slash la podcast Uh, And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye.